Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, uh, distinguished guests. Uh, it's, my name is Christopher Hughes. I'm head of the International Relations Department here, and it's really a great pleasure to welcome you on behalf of the department who are hosting this annual Martin White Memorial Lecture, which is supported by the Martin White Memorial Trust. I'm delighted to introduce Professor Zhang Yongjin from the School of Sociology, Politics and International Studies at Bristol University, who I think several years ago was appropriated, probably by Professor Buzan in a footnote, to become a member of the English School. <laughs> Is that right? Um, and has uh, played a key role, really, in, I think, this revival of the English School uh, by focusing on uh, how China fits into the model. So he really is an excellent speaker to contribute to the Martin White Memorial Lecture series. Uh, he's published widely on traditional Chinese international relations theory, still a much under-researched topic. Uh, I won't go through his, all his publications, of course, but maybe just mention his most recent one, which is a chapter called Curious and Ex Exotic Encounters, Europeans as Supplicants in the Chinese Imperium, 1513 to 1793, which is a chapter in a book um, edited by uh, him and Shogo Suzuki and uh, Joel Quirk called International Orders in the Early Modern Period, Early Modern World Before the Rise of the West. It's just come out with Routledge, so I think that's going to be a very important contribution to looking at non-Western theories of international relations. And this is where Professor Zhang is coming from, and he therefore is really the best person, I think, to speak about and explore the links between Chinese thought and the thinking of Martin White and the English school. Um, I think you're going to speak for about 40 minutes, and then we'll have question and answer. I point out that the talk will be recorded, uh, and a podcast should be available, and I was told not to guarantee this, um, but, but it should be available. Um, the talk will also be published in International Affairs, uh, January 2014, which is the 90th issue of the journal. Uh, so you can catch it in more detail there. And on that note, I'd like to ask you all to make sure your mobile phones are turned off uh, and hand over to Professor Zhang. Um, thank you very much, uh, Chris, uh, uh, for a very kind introduction. Uh, my sincere thanks also to uh, RSE and Department of International Relations for graciously hosting the 2013 Martin White Memorial Lecture. Um, that brings us all here. So good evening to you all. Um, I think I'll stand because I think, uh, uh, you know, after this, I'll stand and talk about, as you said, about 40 odd minutes. Uh, and uh, then obviously uh, I'll take the questions. We can engage in some discussions. Um, it is obviously a very huge pleasure and honor to be standing here today in this hall uh, to deliver the Martin White Memorial Lecture of 2013. I'm really humbled by this occasion that pays tribute to Martin White and by the opportunity it affords me to repay my intellectual debt personally incurred over many years to a number of people closely associated with RSC and Oxford. Hadley Ball, John Vincent, Adam Roberts, and Barry Buzan, among others, from whom I have learned 
uh, more than I can ever hope to acknowledge adequately. Martin White is one of very few classical uh, international theorists of his generation who has shown more than a passing interest in ancient China. In his pioneering attempts at outlining a historical sociology of state systems, White not only cited three examples of ancient state systems, namely the Western, the Greco-Norman, and the Chinese, he also posited that Chinese system was sovereign, similar to the Byzantine basilisk, but different from the ancient Greek polis and the Hellenistic kingdoms in terms of its constitution. White also discussed, though, not, though only tentatively, what he called a triad of philosophical traditions in ancient China, Confucians as rationalists, Taoists as revolutionists, and legalists as realists. White was keenly aware of the importance of going beyond the West in search of international theory. Grotius, he once critically noted, I quote, does not have sufficient knowledge of the non-European world to develop a more complex picture of international society, unquote, because of his traditional Christian view of history. White would have been surprised, a little baffled, and perhaps even dismayed, that until very recently, the ancient Chinese state system in general, and the triad of philosophical traditions of ancient China in particular, which he had been so fascinated about, have been largely ignored in the ever-expanding enterprising uh, of theorizing IR in the existing literature in English. With a few notable exceptions, there has been little meaningful conversation between ancient Chinese philosophy and the search for international theory. International thought in ancient China, if any, is still shrouded in obscurity, despite the renewed interest in the last decade or so in exploring international relations and international thought in antiquity. These promising historical approaches to international theory, I should note, have not taken seriously the world beyond um, uh, the world of thought and institutions and practices that are found beyond Europe and certainly not in ancient China. This is doubly regrettable because Chinese philosophy and disp- uh, philosophy and history of Chinese thought have been and continue to be intensively studied in the humanities discipline by a host of Western uh, scholars as well as their counterparts in China, Japan, and Korea. There is a rich trove of such literature in English for IR scholars to delve into. Ancient China, as White noted, boasts one of the earliest systems of states in world history. Like ancient Greece, but on a much larger scale, and certainly in a much longer historical period, ancient China was in a state of prolonged war during the spring and autumn period and warring states period. Well before Thucydides wrote the Peloponnesian War, Confucius preached the world peace and the universal moral order. Confucius' disciples are contemporaries of Plato and Aristotle. Like Plato and Aristotle, they deliberated extensively on the ethical foundation 
of a good society on the idea of social political order and how to achieve it. Ancient China arguably also provided an unrivaled case for theoretical speculation simply because it presents us with an exceptional story of periodical expansion and contraction of a society of states in antiquity, which was ultimately replaced by a universal empire. Now, in the rest of this lecture, I will dwell on international thought in ancient China. I'm aware of the enormity of the topic and of the challenges posed by the huge undertaking at hand. But in the Whitean spirit and following White to embark on the voyage of discovery, I will have a try. My analytical focus is on the idea of order, how it is deliberated in ancient Chinese political thought, in particular, why and how alternative visions of order are imagined and offered in antiquity, and how the quest for order becomes a moral and a political pursuit in ancient China. Now let me first take you to a discussion of order as a central problematic in ancient China. Now any students of ancient China of spring and autumn period and the Warring States period, the exile age of China, would be invariably struck by two seemingly contradictory and certainly paradoxical phenomena. On one hand, it was politically the most violent, divided, and chaotic period in ancient Chinese history, a period of inexorable disintegration of the Zhou dynasty and of the rise and fall of a system of contending states. On the other, it is intellectually the most creative and philosophically the most innovative in the world of thought in ancient China. The five and a half centuries between 771 and 221 BC were riddled with brutal power politics and interstate wars in ancient China. On one account, the annals of spring autumn attributed to Confucius noted 36 instances of regicide and 52 instances of elimination of states in the period it covers. It also recorded 483 wars between 721 and 481 BC. The period witnessed the progressive decline of the central power and the universal authority of the Zhou dynasty, which had been so profoundly undermined by the late spring-autumn period that political crisis precipitated a profound sense of moral failure and unstoppable disintegration of the polity. About 170 states were said to have existed in the late spring and autumn, by, uh, but by the beginning of the Warring States period, only seven major states remained in competition. The rise and fall of states was the order of the day. These states in ancient China did not, however, just interact in a system where anarchy reigned supreme and the real politic in its ancient incarnation prevailed. They also formed a true and true anarchical society of states, perhaps the earliest in human history that retained detailed written record. They certainly shared a common culture dominated by the Chinese civilization. They created and maintained working of common institutions, 
that we would call today collective security, balance of power, diplomacy, international law in its rather rudimentary form to serve their common interests. Treaties, summit meetings, alliances, diplomatic conventions, intercourt marriage, and even hostage were legitimate and indispensable institutions in this violent and fragmented Chinese world. This most chaotic and violent period is at the same time often referred to as the period of philosophers, the golden age of Chinese philosophy, and the period of intellectual creativity. All competing Chinese philosophical conditions today trace their origins back to this period. The battle of ideas among the fabled numerous masters and hundred schools of thought, the so-called which lasted the historical span of more than three centuries, was fought, therefore, at the same time when the political and social order presided over by the Zhou dynasty was collapsing and when old institutions and the tradition was degenerating and disintegrating. For all classical Chinese thinkers, what Collingwood calls, I quote, the special problem of thought of that day is unsurprisingly the question of order. Confucius, for example, used li bong yue huai, which literally means the collapse of rights and the degeneration of music to sum up the total collapse of moral, social, and political order when he lamented, I quote, the way does not prevail and the way makes no progress. In this year of disorder, classical Chinese thinkers, as once living men, confronted specific problems. They had to wrestle with a number of crucial questions in response to the breakdown of the moral and political order that had once claimed the authority of heaven. How and why had world order decreed by heaven collapsed? Why did human order deviate so much from heaven's will? What to do about it? How was the moral and normative order to be restored? And where was the way? The search for a new moral and normative order takes the form of great debates among classical thinkers concerning new ideas and new institutions that would reestablish and sustain a new order. These contentions among them produce substantially different propositions for the solution of the problem of order, which the early Han doxographers would retrospectively align them into Ruja, which is Confucianism, Daoja, Daoism, Faja, Legalism, Moja, Moism, and Zaja, Eclecticism. They also led, importantly for our purpose, to the emergence of a common philosophical and political discourse, among them uh, not just in terms of shared vocabulary um, that is directly related to order such as zhi, governance, luan, disorder, he, harmony, ping, peace or pacification, an, peace and tranquility, zheng, rectification, and dao, the way. But more importantly, in terms also of a common purpose. 
that is, the search for a longed-for but lost order that would provide Chan again, as the Zhou dynasty was believed to have done, with political order, social stability, economic well-being, and cultural elegance. The prevailing anarchical condition in ancient China, accompanied by the disintegration of the glorious Zhou tradition, therefore stimulated the philosophical and political debates at the time, which also constitute an indispensable part of the search for the ideal of order and good society. Mencius, as the staunch defender of the Confucian vision of an ideal order, once said, I quote, I'm not fond of argument. I simply have no alternative, unquote. Philosophers in ancient China can simply uh, never shirk their social responsibilities. Classical Chinese thinkers were not just men of ideas, but also men of action. More precisely, they were men of both moral and uh, philosophical vision and also political mission, particularly for those who were close to or sought to get close to power. Such appreciation of the social role of the thinkers is particularly pertinent to understanding the importance of philosophical discourse and its orientation, as well as its relevance to practice to the practice of statecraft in ancient China. Let me just quote Arthur Wright, who is a um, specialist in Chinese philosophy. Quote, Chinese philosophers were generally members of the official class concerned with the management of social, economic, and political affairs. They were always near enough to authority to promote the embodiment of their ideas in programs of action. And many of their absolute formulations are intelligible only in terms of programs of action for specific social and political ends. Even Confucius, famed as China's first private thinker, is no exception to this special relationship between princes and philosophers. It is Confucius who set the, a precedent which would be followed by philosophers for the next three centuries by traveling with his disciples from state to state seeking a ruler who would listen to him. Confucius professed ideal ambition. He never realized that. According to Benjamin Schwartz, I quote, was to advise princes how to establish order within their own states as well as within the entire civilized world. It is such a close relationship between knowledge and power that informs the prescriptive nature of Asian Chinese political thought. Let me turn to the second part of my discussion and look at how order has been constructed as social idea uh, in the uh, particular that period. Uh, starting from the spring and autumn period, the increasingly wide gap between the existing ethical and social political order of the day and the ideal order as embodied in heaven's will was troubling to many classical um, thinkers, the huge gap between the real, that is what, what we call what is, 
and the ideal, and what ought to be, of the human order was a central problem in their philosophical speculation. The debates among them on how to restore and create the normative and socio-political order in a period of chaos, conflicts, and war were informed by shared memories, myths, and legends, but also inspired by serious moral and political pursuit for a new order. Among the Exo Age civilizations, ancient China is said to be the only one that has, been, uh, has the sense of looking back from present disruption towards an empire and culture which flourished in the immediate past in, the, in search for a solution for its contemporary problems. Keen historical consciousness compel ancient Chinese philosophers to look back on the lost golden age, particularly the Zhou, in constructing the ideal statehood in China's deep history. For Confucius, the Tao was, as the all-embracing normative human order was already discernible in pre-Confucian classics, in particular the book of documents and the book of poetry, which embodied and was also informed by the earlier cultural orientation of the Shang civilization. Through following the Tao, an imagined universal and all-embracing ethical political order had already been achieved in the historical past. The quest for order means first and foremost, therefore, constructing order as a social ideal. For the Confucians in particular, the idealization of order led to the idealization of the past. It can be seen clearly, for example, throughout the Analytes that Confucius firmly believed that the golden age of harmony, peace, and tranquility had been brought about by sage kings whose moral authorities as ritualized power was sufficient to maintain political order and social stability. The way had prevailed not just in the early Zhou, but also in the preceding two dynasties, the Xia dynasty and also the Shang dynasty, but then had been lost. In other words, a mix of history, legends, and myth led Confucius to believe that ideal order had been already realized in antiquity under the rule of certain sage kings, who had not only created ideal social and political institutions that were in accord with the will of heaven, but had also provided exemplary moral example and leadership. In so doing, they had already shown the posterity what the way of heaven, that is Tianda, was. Put very differently, or slightly differently, Confucius articulated an idea that the highest possibilities of human experience had already been achieved within the known human past, and that hope for the future was to recapture this lost splendor. This idea envisaged no radical different order from the past but made antiquity the ultimate legitimizing sources for any new normative order. For many Confucians, their mission was therefore to recapture and reformulate those institutions of the historical past that were believed to have for centuries uh, maintained social solidarity and enabled people to live in harmony and prosperity. 
It follows that the ideal ethical and political order can be restored or reestablished with the emergence of a true king to provide moral leadership and by returning to the Zhou social institutions. I follow the Zhou, declared Confucius in Analects. Constructing order as a social ideal also takes another pathway. Let me mention it briefly. A belief in the existence of an innate relationship between the natural order and social order is underlined by the assumption that the universe is harmonious and consists of well-ordered relationships, which presupposes a natural harmony between heavenly and earthly forces. The humans are but an element in this all-encompassing cosmos. Whatever social and human order that exists is no more than part of a greater natural world. For the Confucians in particular, between each smaller and larger entity, notably the family and the state, the human and natural worlds, there exists a paired relationship. The family is a microcosm, the state a macrocosm, the human order, a human world is a microcosm, the natural world is a macrocosm. Tying natural order and social order together in this way will not only justify and legitimize the search for social order, it also makes it possible for the Confucians to present and articulate the ideal of a social order and how such an order should be constructed hierarchically. Since heaven is obviously superior to earth, and yang to yin, the ideal social order in human communities should reflect such superior, inferior relationship. Four out of five social relationships formulated by Mencius, which came to embody the ideal social order in ancient Chinese society, as well as Chinese state, are hierarchical. These are father and son, ruler and minister, husband and wife, and old and young. Fulfilling the social obligations defined by their respective positions in social hierarchy is an indispensable part of this social order. The most forceful and also most concise articulation of how a good and ideal familial and political order can be realized is made by Confucius in the Analects. In answering the question raised by the Duke Jin of Qin about government, Confucius simply stated, Jun Jun Chen Chen, Fu Fu Zi Zi, what does it mean? Which literally means when prince behaves like a prince and the minister behaves like minister and when father behaves like a father and son behaves like a son. By extension, an ideal social order can be realized within the family or within the state, as long as everyone in their socially defined hierarchy fulfills their social obligations and functions. The conception of the family as the microcosm of the society and the state put men at the center of the Confucian ethical system. This has profound implications for our understanding um, of classical conceptions of order in ancient China. First, morality is the foundation of any social and political order. No social political order is possible without a moral order. Second, 
It follows that harmonious and stable social and political order is realizable through human efforts. Disorder is a human failure. And third, moral example and leadership is most important in bringing human order in accord with the way, that is the Tao, within the family as well as within the world. Such Confucian concepts as Ren, uh, benevolence, Yi, righteousness, and Shu, tolerance, do not only suggest the ideal moral quality of man, they also emphasize the existence of man as a social being, as these qualities can only manifest themselves and be demonstrated in human relations. Such social relationship functions within the series of, of a series of concentrically larger social units. The foundational unit is without doubt family. This concentric circle, however, extends naturally to the state, empire, and as far as all under heaven, Tianxia. Such distinctive conception of human community at different levels make no clear demarcation between what we understand today as the domestic and the international. For ancient Chinese philosophers, the basic moral principles for establishing and maintaining social political order should be the same, regardless of whether they apply to such social entity as family or all under heaven or any social community in between. How the order was pursued morally and politically, and this is the third aspect I would like to discuss. The Confucian idealization of good order under the sage king antiquity reinforces the central position of men in the Confucian ethical system. While sage kings brought pacification, established order, and maintained stability by following the will of heaven, evil rulers and their immoral deeds perpetuated injustice and caused destruction, therefore losing the mandate of heaven. They were therefore the sources of disorder. Mencius lamented about the world in disarray of his time in the following words. Quote, Tyrants arose one after another. They pulled down houses in order to make ponds, and people had nowhere to rest. They turned fields into hunting parks, depriving the people of their livelihood. Heresies and violence arose, unquote. Embedded in this idealization is a conception of heaven as interacting with men, who in response reacts on heaven, and in so doing reconstitutes the way. <coughs> Confucius said, I quote, a man can enlarge his way, but there is no way that can enlarge a man, unquote. Such conception of cosmic and social order, it is important to note, affords man the capacity to order life without appeal to the transcendent, whether as pre-existing or uh, an universally applicable moral principle, legal enactment, or law of nature. In so idealizing idealizing order, the Confucians also humanize the concept of order and moralize the pursuit of order. The idea that normative social political order in antiquity was dependent on inner virtues of kings and rulers 
who enjoy the mandate of heaven and possess spiritual and ethical power to maintain that order can be found already in the pre-Confucian written literature. Confucius' innovation is generally found in two regards. One is that ordinary people like Confucius himself may teach others how to become a virtuous man, Junzi, thus denying any political authority the monopoly of teaching of virtue. By implication, teaching of virtue is a potent force for maintaining order and transforming society. The analogs and early Confucian doctrine show clearly overriding concern with virtuous human character and behavior. Second, striving to be a man of virtue is an existential goal that can be achieved through learning, knowing, model emulation, and most importantly, self-cultivation, a goal that Confucius himself set out to achieve as the ultimate model. Learning and knowing becomes important, therefore, not primarily for their epistemological reasons, but for their behavioral implications and as a process of character building. In the words of Donald Murrow, I quote, the difference between the early Platonists and Confucians can be stated as follows. The Platonists were more concerned with knowing in order to understand while Confucians were more concerned with knowing in order to behave properly towards other men, probably also women, of course. For the Confucians, then, a moral pursuit of a world order starts from an inner process of learning to be human in a social environment. It starts at home. Self-cultivation is the key to becoming a man of virtue. It requires a process of ethical learning and training, it is a lifelong process to internal virtues as the second nature. Learning is thus central to the cultivation of, the, of individuals and to the ordering of society. It is first and foremost in the proper practice of family commitments that one learns to appreciate and to manifest virtue, as it is believed that it is in the bosom of the family that the individuals learns uh, learn to act in terms of virtuous motives as ends in themselves rather than means to ulterior ends. And also because family is thought to be the natural basis and the strongest evidence of human love, harmony, mutual concern, and obligations. Therefore, a concentrated model of very essence of humanity. It is also within the sacred institution of family that one learns how to handle power and authority correctly. Hence, the Confucian emphasis on four core family values, zhong, loyalty, xiao, filial piety, ren, benevolence, and yi, righteousness, is among foundational values for society. The unremitting pursuit of moral attainment and perfection by individuals to become virtuous men is enhanced, not hindered, by their particularistic familial commitments. The inner and intricate relationship between learning as the foundation for self-cultivation and ordering of the state, as well as pacifying the world, is made more explicit in the great learning, Da Xue, a Confucian classics. 
A two-way process is stipulated here. It's a little bit interesting and also, I suppose, a lengthy quote here. The ancients who wished to illustrate illustrious virtues throughout the world first ordered well their own states. Wishing to order well their states, they first regulated their families. Wishing to regulate their families, they first cultivated their persons. Wishing to cultivate their persons, they first rectified their hearts. Wishing to rectify their hearts, they first sought to be sincere in their thoughts. Wishing to be sincere in their thoughts, they first extended to the ultimate, utmost their knowledge. Such extension of knowledge lay in the investigation of things. Things being investigated, knowledge being, became complete. Their knowledge being complete, their thoughts were sincere. Their thoughts being sincere, their hearts were then rectified. Their hearts being rectified, the persons were cultivated. The persons being cultivated, their families were regulated. Their families being regulated, their states were rightly governed. Their states being rightly governed, the whole world was made tranquil and happy. Now, this is, in short, the idea of Neji, Sheng, Wai Wang, that is, inner sage, outer king. That is, full realization of complete self-cultivation would not only lead to sagehood, but also gain the person moral and humane authority as ritualized power to rule and reign the state as well as the world. Self-cultivation is a lifelong pursuit even for the Son of Heaven. This appeal to ritual observance, social norms, and cultural values as internalized personal virtue for re-establishing and maintaining order at the interstate level was clearly not shared by many other philosophers in ancient China. Mots, the, the leader of the Moor, uh, Moism, Mots was wholly oriented towards a more practical goal of preventing war. Even when his rejection of the inner sources of mor- morality does not preclude a space for the role of moral sentiment. It was explicitly rejected by legalists. Leading legalists from Lord Shang to Shen Buhai and to Han Feizi would strongly argue that the establishment of peace and order had little to do with the subjective intentionality of any sage king or virtuous man. It is rather a combination of fa, which is penal laws and other social institutions associated, shu, statecraft, and shi, coercive power and authority, that can make a state such as Qin sufficiently wealthy and powerful to achieve undisputable hegemony in order to pacify the Chinese world. In the non-ideal world of cruel social and political realities of the warring states period, and parallel to the Confucian advocate of moral pursuit of order is an ongoing and relentless political pursuit. The emergence of an institution called Ba, uh, translated as hegemonic system, in the spring and autumn period is a primary example. This Ba system refers to a league of great powers established through treaties and agreements and led by a hegemonic lord 
nominally blessed by the Zhou Song of Heaven, whose leadership was consensually recognized by other great powers. It takes upon itself the responsibility to prevent the complete collapse of the so-called Pax Choica as a nominal order and to keep the semblance of the Zhou universal moral authority and to maintain an interstate order through recognizing the legitimacy of differentiated level of authority of those contending states. From the 7th century BC to the 5th century BC, four different regional powers, namely Zheng, Qi, Jing, Chu, emerged successively as the bar, the hegemon or the leader, to lead this particular system, which operated with varying degrees of success. Alliances were formed and numerous wars were fought in the name of maintaining the moral and political order. Some in the meetings, peace conferences, shifting alignment of great powers and changing leadership of the bar are common practices in this nascent society of states. One could discern already here some operation of diplomacy, war, balance of power, and great power management in antiquity as institutional practices to sustain the bar system. The practice of balanced power is both an idea and an institution cultivated in so-called the central century of alliances, which is 350 to 250 BC, during the Warring States period. Seven contending states engaged perpetually in forming shifting horizontal, which is pro-Qing, vis-a-vis vertical anti-Qing alliances of various coalitions. This so-called um, which is, literally means vertical coalitions vis-à-vis horizontal alliances, has since been already deeply embedded in Chinese strategic culture. It is a bitter historical irony that Chinese world was eventually pacified, not through moral and human authority, but by the reliance on brutal power in 221 BC. It is not those philosophically more enduring ideas dominant in traditional Chinese thought in subsequent generations that eventually proved uh, pivotally instrumental in bringing order to the anarchical world of warring states. It is rather the antithesis of the Confucian ideas advocated by the legalist school. Laws, statecraft, and coercive power that helped the Qin to emerge as the ultimate victor of all warring states. Uh, Li Si, a a lead figure in the legal legal school who helped China's first emperor to unify the Chinese world and served as his prime minister, did not mince his words. I quote, the Qin has been victorious for four generations. The army is powerful, Within the four seas, their power overawes the princes. They do not accomplish this by human authority and righteousness. They do it by conducting their affairs according to what is most useful and expedient. It is the ruler of the Qin who appropriated to himself the title of the first emperor and who unified the fragmented Chinese world not by returning to the ideal of the Zhou in China's deep history, but by constructing a new polity, imperial China as a universal empire, 
which was to last for more than two millenniums. Confucians, as China's XL age cultural and philosophical innovators, had ostensibly failed. History went on. Or did they? Did they fail? Let me conclude by saying that the above discussions are meant to demonstrate, I paraphrase Foucault, the exotic charm of another system of thought, as well as to expose the limitation of one's own. They have also shown, I hope, that Confucius and Laozi, as well as other classical Chinese thinkers, though historically conditions, as White would say, I quote, are contemporaneous with us philosophically, as much as Plato, Aristotle, and ancient Greek philosophers. Ancient Chinese thinkers, no less than their Greek counterparts, were confronted with intractable difficulties of international order of their time. In China's exile age, as as much as in the Greek one, different visions of order were imagined, offered, critiqued, and different approaches to pursuing order in international life were debated and practiced. Question is, how can rediscovering and retrieving ancient Chinese political thought as an actual age civilizational heritage enrich our search for international theory? I would not pretend that I have straightforward answers to this question, which I really don't. But let me make two points. One is that we should acknowledge, following Benjamin Schwartz, I quote, the thought of ancient China does not provide single responses to the problems of ancient civilization any more than does the thought of ancient Greece. What emerged from the common cultural orientations of these institutions in the Axial Age are not univocal responses, but rather shared problematics. It follows that we should also recognize the possibility of a universal human discourse at the level of shared problematics, such as the problem of order. Despite the unquestioned distance created by divergent large cultural orientations of the Axial Age civilizations. The other is simply to say that what I seek to do in this particular lecture as did Confucius in the Analects, and as White has done in International Theory, Three Traditions, is to start and to issue an invitation to an open conversation between the world of thought in ancient China and the theorization of IR as an intellectual ritual. Given the neglect of ancient China in search for a truly international theory so far, not taking up this invitation to participate in this intellectual ritual would make us all doubly culpable. Thank you very much. Thank you you very much indeed for a sweeping um, 
coverage of, of a highly complex uh, body of thought that will be new to many people in this room, and, but also we have quite a few people here who do work on, uh, on ancient Chinese thought as well. Um, so we have um, about just under half an hour for Q&A. If anyone would like to start off. Yes? Thank you so I think the question is about the impact of these sort of foreign in invasions and incursions from the Mongols in the Yuan dynasty and then the Jesuit Christian sort of missionary um, influence and, and how that shaped Confucianism yeah Gosh, uh, how shapes Confucius? Big question. That's a big question. That the how do I how do I respond to this? Um, I don't think there is any significant impact of the European contact with China that has uh, actually exercised uh, on 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 Confucianism uh, or development of Confucianism really. The most significant kind of uh, development is really in the um, uh, um, Ming Dynasty, the New Confucianism. Uh, but that that's, uh, is, is more of uh, uh, the um, the internal, so to speak. I mean, there is no external impact, if you like. Uh, so I, I'm not quite sure. You know, uh, even in the uh, the 19th century, uh, when this the real Western impact. Uh, uh, was felt in China, obviously, then there was a very critical view of, of, of Confucianism. But that, that's a very different story. Um, but it's more, again, generated from within China rather than like, direct uh, uh, the uh, European impact. Uh, what is very interesting, actually, this is in, uh, partly in the, in the book that you mentioned that we, uh, we, uh, we just published, uh, is, is how uh, Confucian ideas uh, in the uh, 16th and uh, 17th century as late as 18th century, had a very significant uh, influence in Europe in the Enlightenment ideas and how many Enlightenment uh, thinkers actually pick up ideas from Confucianism. Uh, you know, Voltaire and uh, Leibniz and all this uh, had a very strong influence uh, for, from Confucianism. So it's uh, the other way traffic, really, uh, before, let's say, before the 19th century. The traffic is the other way rather than from Europe to, to, to China. Okay. So your, your co-author, Shogo uh, Suzuki, yeah? yeah? I think you were next. Yeah. Microphone. Just a quick question, Mark. When you talk about order, shall we say, um, and when the, these philosophers in the context of the warring states period talking of, about order, I was wondering... The, uh, although they had different approaches, wasn't their ultimate goal unification? Unity as an ideal, mm -hmm. and um, and I'd like to know your thoughts on that one. And the second thing is, when we talk about enriching international relations theory today, in one way um, we live in a um, we live in a world where un unity might not be an ideal, especially when we live in a, a international system of multiple nation states or sovereign states. So I want, um, by becoming, um, by, becoming uh, well, by using internet, the idea of um, ancient Chinese political thought, uh, do we inadvertently end up becoming good solidarists? And I was just wondering how, you know, uh, how China as a country, which suffered, the, um, suffered many 
moves to homogenize. How might they react to that? It would be an interesting thought. Are we, are we all, if you introduce um, Chinese intellectual thought, are we all solidarists now, so to speak? <laughs> interesting question. Uh, the first one uh, um, about the, the Warren State period. I mean, this is uh, it's very interesting because, uh, as I mentioned in, uh, earlier in my, 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 in my talk, uh, you know, this uh, very uh, unrivaled case and how a uh, system of states or society of states eventually was re replaced by the universal empire. Um, now, uh, obviously, the most uh, kind of uh, 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 known uh, study by Victoria Huey uh, was arguing, you know, really it's because of the balance of power collapse in China or not collapse in Europe, obviously, then uh, the question over there is really what's the role of ideal? I mean, it's not idea, it's ideal. I mean, the ideal that I talked about, the ideal you mentioned, uh, the unity, the, uh, the unification of the Chinese world over there um, exercise a very strong influence in legitimizing even the Qin's expansion and eventually uh, its efforts to unify the whole China. And so by 300 sort of um, uh, uh, BC, uh, then the, the uh, Confucians, including uh, the people that follow even Mencius, uh, began to give, give up the idea of you know going back to the Zhou, and they realized that eventually China would have to be unified by force. So that gives con considerable legitimacy to Qin's pursuit of this unifying the world as a universal empire. So I think that is seems to have been neglected, you know, sort of in, in at least in Victor Hui's uh, study. Uh, that's the only really one significant one that we know at the moment in English anyway. Um, the this, uh, solidarist uh, question is very interesting because uh, there is an undermining emphasis on moral solidarist, uh, solidarity uh, uh, throughout the Tianxia. So if you actually take the Tianxia means the, the, the uh, boundless world uh, over there, then there is a, an, a, a sense of uh, you know, kind of universal um, uh, morality, universal solidarity among humanity, if we now use the humanity as the concept that actually Tianxia even is, is wider than humanity. Um, so I think you're right. I mean, your observation is certainly correct. Uh, perhaps uh, the soldiers uh, side of the English school will be very happy to follow uh, the, the, the Confucius ideas. Okay, so it's um, Peter Ferdinand. Yeah. Okay, thank you. A, a wide-ranging talk, and in a sense my question follows on from the previous one. You focus particularly on the possibilities of achieving some kind of consensus on order between what today we might describe as being peoples who are part of China. But was any thought given to how order might be achieved vis-à-vis non-Chinese, people about, beyond the frontier, uh, even the barbarians? Or was, in that sense, the only solution to international order the imposition of Chinese superiority and turning people into being, becoming good Confucians? Mm. Again, uh, interesting question. Um, the short answer is the Qin originally was on the periphery of the Chinese civilization. So they were not really entirely part of Chinese. It's over in this prolonged period of war and expansion and we now probably call socialization, integration, whatever. Then Qin became 
recognized as Chinese. So they were actually started as semi-barbarians on the periphery on the West, you know, in the West. And that's why at the very beginning, nobody takes notice of them. So it's, it's okay, they, they're doing their things in the West and fine. Um, but eventually, when they actually gradually expanded in eastwards and into part of China, it became to be, let's say, you know, if we use today's word, it became civilized and became part of, 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 of the Chinese. I think at that particular time, uh, the kind of uh, understanding, at least in this deliberation by those philosophers, uh, mostly concentrate on what they know as the Chinese world. Although this Chinese world was, was not defined in strict terms as excluding the semi uh, barbarian people like, uh, like um, Mike Qin, this kind of idea of civilized Chinese world, I think, is probably imposed from us, you know, posterity by posterity. Because, I mean, Wu, Wu Guo, what is now also called, you know, sort of a, a, a Shanghai area, you know, really. And Yue Guo, which is down south, I mean, they are also on the periphery of the so-called Chinese world. The Chinese world at the time uh, was, I mean, if we are talking about real, real Chinese world, it's very small. But these are interacting with the so-called Chinese world, the Zhongyuan, and then eventually they all became part of what we now know Chinese civilization. So I think in that particular period, uh, perhaps we, we, uh, uh, the, the philosophers are concentrated on these areas. Then, of course, further down, uh, then further out, uh, there was uh, the real barbarians. I think you, you know, even in the Analects, there was a very famous quote uh, from Confucius to say, but for Guanzhong, which is you know, in, the, in the early spring uh, autumn period, um, then we we'll, we'll all uh, have long hairs or something, you know, which means all the Chinese will actually become uh, barbarians. So, so there was some reference, but not the focus of the deliberation of Chinese order. Hey, Cornelia? Cornelia Nafari, um, the microphone. When we think about war as an institution, we actually mean that uh, there will be attached to war certain procedures. Uh, yeah rules of its yeah. conduct. Yeah. Did, the, did the Chinese in any of these periods, uh, uh, the philosophers, contemplate uh, the regulation of war yeah. in any sense? Yes. I mean, they were also, uh, they have to declare the war. They have, follow, they have to follow certain procedures. Actually, there were even the discussion of uh, just war and just war. I mean, so it's uh, uh, on, uh, in, in ancient China. It's just, uh, for example, um, War is justifiable if it is in support of the legitimate claim of the change of, of the throne. You know? So if, if you have an uh, illegitimate uh, us, usurpation of the throne, the other states can intervene and overthrow that usurper. I mean, that kind of uh, uh, practice, not, not only is in practice, but also in theory. So there are deliberations uh, over there and, uh, and also uh, how you start and even how you end the war. Uh, and so there are, yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, there was a student here, so I want to... I'll come back to you, you first. Yeah. You Hello. First. Um, when you spoke about order, one of the, the bedrocks of order was, was self-control and you know, knowledge and, and using that to sort of control yourself. When you think of the, the, the kind of Greco-Roman tradition and, and the, the emphasis of, on self-control to, to ensure that you have real freedom, that you're not a slave to, to your passions and, and other things, is there, is, there any, is there any concept of freedom in this sort of discussion of order in, in China, or is that a concept that's just that's sort of missing, or do you see that as, as being kind of you know, compatible or related? 
freedom? No, not really. I, I haven't really, uh, you know, in all the readings in both English and Chinese, I, I haven't seen any deliberation of the idea of freedom by Chinese philosophers. Uh, I have to think very hard, really. Uh, you know, that's, that's interesting. I Zhuangzi. Huh? Zhuangzi. Sorry? Zhuangzi. <laughs> Zhuangzi. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. I mean, Lao Zhang, yeah, I think you're right. Maybe Lao Zhang is kind of a uh, tradition. Lao Zhang mm-hmm. may have some idea of, you know, sort of uh, leave. Uh, but that freedom is not, not a fight for freedom. You just no. leave the world. So then I have my own world and my own freedom. That kind of freedom is quite different, isn't it, from the freedom that is, is worth fighting for. Uh, no. Thank you. So, uh, Professor Callahan. Next, I think. Yeah. Uh, thanks for your talk. I, I look forward to reading it. Uh, it's published in January, I guess. That's good. Um, it sort of follows up from the last question because if I understood you correctly, you were talking about order as, a, as an ideal, as a goal, that um, disorder is a problem. So the, the thing that the philosophers were thinking about and talking about was how to get order and how to keep it. But, I, but then later you talked about how um, the thinkers were involved in a shared problematique of kind of issues and such. And that made me think of how, I guess, because I'm thinking of the same issue. I'm thinking, damn, he wrote the article before I could. Um, uh, but I was thinking of it in terms of this dynamic tension between order and chaos, between zhi and luan, luan, and how um, you can't really understand order unless you understand its opposite. And this is, this is a very classical Chinese thing, that there's a tension between wen and wu, between civil and military, between um, inside and outside. And that... Uh, when you get beyond the Confucian classics and go to Lao Tzu and, and specifically Chuang Tzu, their discussions of chaos are actually often much more interesting than their discussions of order and that uh, luan. Sometimes it's very hard to know how to translate it because sometimes it seems to mean order as well as chaos. So I was just curious how you, if, if this is if part of your thinking, whether I just uh, kind of missed it or whether this... It doesn't make sense. Um, if I understand uh, your, your question correctly, uh, you're asking whether chaos is also a kind of order. Is that, is that yes. it's also a kind of order, isn't it? Are you, are you saying chaos is also a kind of order? Yes, yeah. Um, I'm not entirely clear, clear what your question is. I mean, obviously, without uh, chaos, you won't have order. There must be chaos. Then do you understand what is order? Um, I mean, I thought you, you might actually be asking whether chaos is also kind of order, uh, in a way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in, in a way, uh, you know, sort of, uh, even yeah. if, if, if we look at ancient China, in particular spring, Ottoman, and, and Warren State period, um, we actually talk about order in those period, but it's actually chaos. So, I mean, chaos is also a kind of order, depending on how we actually look at it. Um, but obviously, the, the order, that the ideal order, that Confucians in particular, but also shared by many other classical uh, Chinese thinkers, 
uh, are much better than this kind of chaotic order, let's call it. Uh, so I think whether that answers your question or not, I think chaos and order, yes, they uh, have this, uh, what, what do you call this, the relation? Dialectical. Di- dialectical yeah. relationship. What is, what is order? What is, what is chaos? You're looking for the anarchical society, I think. <laughs> but, uh, right next to you. So. I'm also uh, confused by the identity of a warring state period. Uh, if we observe it uh, in uh, perspective in school, should we consider the uh, system of states or society or states? I, I'm a, I know m- many uh, existing literature and scholars they may prefer it's a system because uh, in the uh, spring autumn period uh, the Zhou cult exists. However, in Warsaw it no longer exists, and the states, uh, the bloody war, ruthless and like Victoria has uh, emphasized. But it, I personally think uh, we, we cannot neglect a very important fact that all the states, in, even in Warren states, they shared a very important idea, uh, or in uh, Ruth Smith's words, the institution, uh, constitution structure, that's the uh, ground unification. And, and this made the so-called balance of power, or the sovereignty, or these ideas uh, impossible. And uh, so, um, I, I even think should we should we think about rethink the Bull's uh, classical identity uh, def- definition of the soci- international society? He just said the shared common uh, shared common uh, value, but what kind of value is it the value of uh, coexistence or the value of universal universal idea? Like Meng, uh, we 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 come to Mengxia's conversation with Liang Huiwang. Liang said, "How to make the world harmonious?" Mengxia said in one word, "United." And the, his idea is very <laughs> very shared by uh, his peers. So uh, th- this is my my puzzle. <laughs> Thank you. So question. Um. Well, is it a question? Is it's a it's question? more a comment. Yeah. Really. You mean you mean the Warren State system, uh, Warren State period, whether uh, I, the I Chinese states form a society of states or just simply system of states? The point is because there's this ideal of unification, unification. it makes it different from the anarchical society of Hedley Bull which doesn't have that ideal of unification, the main value no, is we, we still, sovereignty. No, I, mean, I think yeah. we, even so. in the anarchical society, we're still talking about possibility of a world government. I mean, is that, is that, there's no difference between really unification where you have a, a, a government, world government, so the world government of Chinese uh, world, I mean, or the world government we, we still, I mean, uh, when still writing about the possibility of world government in European general of international relations. So, I mean, the idea of, uh, even in the anarchical world, we still can imagine, if you like, uh, as an ideal, a possibility of a world government. I mean, that doesn't actually cancel out the existence of a society of states uh, in the Warren States period. I don't think, I mean, even in the spring uh, autumn period, when we have the Joe Court exercising nominal authority, universal kind of claim of uh, moral authority, still the existence of the, the society of states was still there. It's very real in, in practice. Thank you. Uh, Professor Barry Buzan, who's just here, uh, in the second row. Yeah. Second row. Yeah. 
Thanks, Yongjin. Um, I want to uh, start where you ended, um, which was, I think you argued that we, we in IR more broadly need to take into account um, ancient Chinese political theory as part of the sources for the way we think about IR. And, and I think that's right. Um, but there's a slight oddity about um, ancient Chinese political thought, because China, unlike the West, has two histories. I mean, it has this, this warring states and spring and autumn period history, which looks a little bit like Western history in some way and has been suitably plundered by people like Cal Holstey and such like to kind of reinforce the idea that anarchy is king. Yeah. Um, but the oddity is that Chinese political theory pretty much all comes from that period. And then there's 2,000 years of something else which doesn't seem to have any political philosophy. Whereas in the, if you look at the, at the Western canon, or at least the way the Western uh, political thought is selected, um, we select out uh, political thinkers who support a, a more or less continuous history of anarchy all the way from Thucydides on up through Hobbes and uh, uh, Machiavelli and such like. Um, so the question is really, um, you know, is that, is that kind of missing large chunk in Chinese history, which isn't like Western history, but which doesn't seem to be represented by ancient Chinese political thought either. Or I guess my question is, is it represented by ancient Chinese political thought? Because order here can take, in the Chinese historical case, can take two forms. You can have the anarchical society type order, or you can have something else, the tribute system order, whatever you want to call it, which is a more hierarchical form of, uh, of order. So to which of these does ancient Chinese political thought speak? Uh, or if it only speaks to the anarchic order, um, then can we kind of fit it very comfortably into the canon of Western political thought? Mm. I think this is one of the... Uh, that's, how do I call this? Uh, this is one of the let's call it justifications sometimes uh, by some scholars in the West to exclude the consideration of Chinese political thought because, I mean, again, you know, it's, it's not only because it's Chinese but because it's, you know, sort of uh, there's a break of this kind of history. And how does it talk to uh, the more recent one and how does it talk even to China's own history? Um, my my uh, sort of uh, uh, thinking about this uh, is that... Um, um, the idea over there uh, certainly uh, is not what we understand as international. I mean, if we have very strict understanding of the international, uh, even when I talk about the Confucian ideas, about how the idea of, of uh, ideal order, uh, there is no such very clear demarcation between what is domestic and what is, what is international. It's just a good life. A good life that applies not only domestic laws from even from the family all the way throughout the world. So that kind of, that there is a difficulty over there whether and how we can learn from that in understanding if we have a very strict understanding of what is international today. Um, so the Confucian ideas or the even the ideas of other political philosophers uh, obviously still informs how Imperial China deals with its foreign affairs. Not 
in anarchical world because I mean, there was no anarchical world in, uh, anymore after 2021 BC. But the idea and how to deal with this inside-outside relationship is very much there. If we are defining international as inside and outside kind of uh, a relationship. So, I mean, you mentioned tribute system. I mean, those ideas still informed uh, even the, the practice uh, of uh, the tributary system. I know lots of people have their hands up, but I am going to finish here because but you can um, join us on the fifth floor of the old building. We have a reception to which everyone is invited. That's the fifth floor of the old building, the senior common room. I'm, I, I want to keep the time, though, because I know some people have a long way to get back tonight and the weather isn't good and so on. So <laughs> we will stop here and continue our discussions um, in the old building. Fifth floor, please do join us. But I would like to thank very much uh, Professor Zhang for a fascinating presentation. And, uh, many thanks indeed.